Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. We're starting up the new season of our Bookshelf Podcast, having an amazing new co-host, Saga Helgeson, who will, together with myself, Homatrifa, and my co-host, Luba Timonina, bring you unique insights from our guests. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. Today, we talk to Aaron Cooper, who is a lecturer in law at Coventry University and a PhD candidate at the University of Eastern Finland. His doctoral research explores the link between the development of geoengineering its regulation and the consequences for Arctic indigenous peoples. He teaches undergraduate and postgraduate students in public international law, human rights and international environmental law. Aaron also holds a visiting lecturer post at the Siberian Federal University in Krasnoyarsk in Russia, teaching environmental law and sustainable development. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for accepting our invitation to talk with us today and welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. Hi guys, thank you very much for having me. And to start off this conversation, we would like to modestly invite ourselves into your reality and ask you to tell us a little bit about where you're based at the moment, uh, what's the weather like as seen from your window, so that our listeners can connect with you. Okay, okay. Well, um, I'm currently in my makeshift office um, at home. Um, I'm facing my window, which is, I mean, usually on a good day, it's quite nice, um, but it's south facing. So usually the the sun shines in and it's, um, halfway, halfway through the day, like the winter sun is kind of blinding. So I have to draw the blinds, but usually it's a good view of my, uh, gardens, um, and kind of the wildlife, watching all the birds fly around and things, things like that. It's, um... Yeah, it's quite nice. It's raining though now, so it's kind of a grey day, but uh, very typical for the UK at this time of year. Yeah, um, I'm in the same situations. Uh, I think Bifford north than you are, but yeah, it's grey and raining. And you know? I mean, a good autumn day in in the UK in England. Indeed, it is indeed. Um, so I guess we we can start talking about the work you've done and I think you've worked a lot on offshore hydrocarbon and regulation in the Arctic. So could you expand a Mm. tiny bit more on this uh, for listeners to to see what you were working on uh, before tackling this PhD? Okay, so I mean, my um, research has been, um, like my research and my work has been generally focused up on um, energy development and the northern and the northern sea route. So the Arctic in general, and like the northern sea route as a kind of uh, as a kind of focal point, because I've always been quite fascinated with um, with the Arctic. It's always a place that I've felt like kind of it's really strange. Really, I've, I've I've always felt really connected to it and cold places and things like that. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm some kind of one of those weird Bear Grylls uh, survival type people. Um, yeah, and, and so it's it's one of those things that I've always always really had um, or felt like I had a, had a connection to. Um, but gen- yeah, but generally I've looked at the Arctic within the environmental, within like the context of environmental law and like environmental security and things like that. 
as a kind of consequence of that, obviously we're looking at the environment and looking at the changing Arctic, you are automatically, or as a kind of younger researcher, I was sort of drawn into this idea of um, energy development and how that and how energy development, oil extraction and such like that has looked at, um, has affected the Arctic and how it has um, developed. And it's um, just fantastic. I mean, it's a fantastic area that I that that I got in, that I got into. And looking at and looking at the NSR, like the Northern Sea Route, for the for the uninitiated, for the uninitiated, if I refer to the NSR as the Northern Sea Route, so any of the listeners, as it were. Um, but of course, with the chain, with all the changes which are coming, there are all these economic, uh, there are all these economic opportunities. So changes were like within the Northern Sea Route. And within the, like the green transition itself, so that's the kind of thing which I've sort of um, which I've sort of looked at, and that has kind of, and the research now has sort of evolved in from looking at specific the uh, at specifically the um, energy development and the environment. Now, because of the um, green transition, climate change, and and whatnot, now it is more focused on. Um, indigenous participatory rights uh, within the context of geoengineering and well climate intervention depending on uh, depending on the literature which you look at it's usually referred to as things like climate intervention geoengineering but it's it largely refers to the same sort of set of processes and, and technologies um, that are implemented or that try to implement uh, significant changes within the um, within the climate so yeah, so I mean, it's kind of been a general, uh, a gradual transition from looking at kind of energy extraction and um, energy extraction and the geopolitical significance of, of specific routes in the Arctic, really. Um, but uh, and I think this the the idea of geoengineering, what I'm what I'm kind of looking at now, is something which is um, developed, uh, something which has developed over the last um, couple of years, really. And it's well, the, the subject itself, or within the within the context of the law, it's experiencing somewhat of a um, renaissance. I mean, we did have there was lots of there was a, like a kind of lots of uh, a flurry of kind of information and, and articles and literature that kind of developed around 2010, sort of that time, um, and then it sort of died down a little, a little bit. Um, so there were a few there there have been there have been developed developments within uh, like looking at things like governance and um how that how the implementation of it affects like environmental security and whatnot uh, within the arctic um, and now it's kind of um experienced this renaissance again where it's um where, where it's uh, there is once like once again a kind of focus within lo- the law um because of course within the technical side of things um so looking at the more um uh, looking at the more practical actual implementation of um, geoengineering processes and technologies and such it's always kind of remained consistent but the law has kind of um it's kind of had a lull and then it's it's now back again and uh that's a, it's a it's a train that i've jumped on as it were so. all right that's so interesting uh perhaps for people a bit less familiar with what geoengineering is could you just try to briefly summarize what it is and and also what are uh, the consequences uh, or the role that law has to play uh, for geoengineering. Well, generally, then, um, ge- I mean, geoengineering 
or climate interventions and such um, can be understood, or, or one of the kind, of, one of the kind of largest, uh, widely accepted definitions is the the large scale manipulation of a specific process central to controlling the planet's climate for the purpose of obtaining a specific benefit. So it's um, generally playing, or, or to put it in, um, to put it in kind of ease of easy like easy terms, um, it's essentially playing with the planetary thermostat really um but the significance with the arctic is that obviously it's 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 the sea, the arctic sea ice and the um the ice caps are incredibly important for maintaining the radiative balance of the planet so energy so energy which is radiated from the sun heat energy which is re- like radiated is reflected some of it is held in by the atmospheric uh, atmospheric gases the greenhouse effect and so on and then some of it is reflected back back out from the sea from the sea ice but the issue is or one of one of the main problems is with the planet warming um the sea ice is of course disappearing and the white the white kind of reflective um arctic sea ice is slowly disappearing and in which case it's the dark water of the it's the um, the dark waters of the Arctic Ocean, which are being exposed. And of course, um, if you expose darker, like the darker colours to the um, to the heat, it it retains that energy. So, which in which case it's driving the it's driving ocean temperatures up as well. So, it's quite important um, that we do try and at least maintain, or that we do try and do something to maintain the sea ice. So. That's why it's looking more and more likely that geoengineering will take place in the Arctic. So yeah, I mean, I mean, that's it. In, in, in a nutshell, that is the kind of the kind of processes and the risks and why we kind of must try at least something. I mean, we live on a on an increasingly managed planet. We manage more or less every aspect of it. Um, so why, if the technology is there, why on earth should we not try at least with the cli- with the um, climate? And so the angle, the angle would be to foster more environmental security in the Arctic. Um, yeah, poten- uh, potentially it would be, but because I mean, of course, when when you look at it from an environmental security perspective, it's it's state action or inaction which can cause that, which can cause that environmental security. So it's a, it's a catch twenty two. They they are each of the arctic states are stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of in terms of if they don't do something then it's going to create insecurity for the numerous people which live within the arctic but then if they do do something then it could also potentially create difficulties and detrimental circumstances for those people that live in the arctic and um it is a I, for one, would not want to be at the head of any sort of state that was making making these decisions, um, or I'd want to be on a significant amount of money to be to make these decisions. <laughs> it is difficult. It is a really difficult period that the Arctic is going to go that the Arctic is going to go through, especially with all the with all the changes which are occurring. Um, it is indeed a very tricky question, mm-hmm. you know, and I I'm, I'm wondering. For you, have been to different uh, places, or like different universities in the Arctic, and you have colleagues um, in Norway, in Finland, and Russia, and you've even taught in Russia. Mm. 
there must be like different understandings of this geoengineering, right? And are, yeah. the possibilities of geoengineering and uh, the impacts of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, I mean, largely, it's largely the whole um, the discussion and the discourse surrounding um, geoengineering is largely split into those um, those that kind of say, well, yes, it is. Um, yes, it is something which we should try. Yes, it is fine. Um, the risks are manageable. But then the other camp that kind of there is the other camp which says pretty much that no 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 we shouldn't do this it's kind of playing um, it's kind of playing God the Earth systems are far too complex for us to fully understand these sorts of interventions if we were to um, if if we were to intervene and we were to kind of initiate an increase in sea ice or if we were to um, uh, use solar uh, like solar shades and things like that we'd we'd have we don't have the the kind of comprehensive understanding of um, of of the consequences of what the consequences are because everything is so, um, for lack of a better phrase, it, everything is so beautifully connected in on, on the planet, like the hydrosphere, the cryosphere, the atmosphere. I mean, the planet is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's an absolutely fantastic and wondrous, um, wondrous thing. So to to kind of play with any one of those any one of those elements within the system, it could potentially be very detrimental or very bad. Very, very bad. Um, it kind of reminds me of the um, the Lord of the Rings. Have, have you both seen the Lord of the Rings? You must have. Seen, seen sure. and read, yeah. Seen and read, yeah. Seen and read. It kind of reminds me of um, uh, the Arctic is kind of a... A Lord of the Rings scenario. You'll see where I'm, you'll see where I'm going with this. There are many players. There are there are many players within a, within a small area, Middle Earth, um, and creeping creeping industrialization is probably going to ruin it. But then there there is like the industrialization, the technology, and the ways in which we are we potentially could disturb the natural order of things could potentially lead to consequences which are very detrimental especially for the people which especially for the people that live um within the arctic i mean there is four million residents four million residents live within the arctic uh, the arctic circle so 66 degrees north and 10 percent of those are indigenous indigenous peoples so while while there is and there are these huge benefits i think one of the interesting one of the interesting dilemmas from a academic point of view is like, like i said to you earlier roman it's, it's kind of this they are the the arctic states are kind of damned if they do but damned if they don't but then also also Lubov, as, as i as i as i said as well in response uh, in response to your question is that there are these differing understandings of what's acceptable what's not acceptable because of course this is all being driven by the changes in the arctic and climate change and some states, for example, Russia, they see it as a benefit because the northern sea route opens up with the lack of with, with the lack of sea ice or the the steadily kind of reduction in the volume of sea ice. They see it as a huge benefit because they can they can try and make the northern sea route more commercially viable. Although it's probably going to still be a, a fair few years before um, before there is kind of a serious commercial viability there. And also there is this polar silk road, isn't it, as well? This polar silk road 
um, are trying to uh, exert their influence over it. So it's the changes, the changes, the causes and the consequences are all driving a rather um, a rather complex scenario, a very, very complex scenario. It's so interesting you mentioned the Lord of the Rings there because um, last Friday I was um, attending a conference, mm. obviously virtually, on international and literary criticism and what can literature uh, and the different kind of literature analyses can uh, bring into our perception mm. of international law. So that's quite interesting to, to picture, I guess, the situation in the Arctic in terms of, of literature and what can, mm. like, uh, how this can help. Um, but another question I have is from a regulatory and international legal perspective, mm. we often talk about the friction between, in, on the one hand, environmental law policies and mechanisms mm. and the implementation of rights of local and indigenous peoples, so human rights, but also indigenous peoples' rights. Mm, mm. Um, you talked you talked about participatory rights, and I guess we, we can go into talking about uh, free, prior, and informed content, FPIC, mm. uh, which is a right uh, found in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um and, but could you could you talk a bit more about the, the frictions that could come uh, between, on the one hand, trying to implement or, or regulate uh, or legislate on geoengineering and the implementation of uh, of the content of the rights for, for indigenous peoples? Hmm. Well, one of the key things um, to to consider in this in this um, context is that. This, like ge geoengineering, is something which is essentially designed to mitigate the symptoms of climate change. If we can, if we can uh, borrow a kind of uh, a virulent metaphor here, um, so it's um, yeah, it's it's something which is, um, or the the discourse behind it is something which is kind of driven to address these um, symptoms. So the changes in temperature, the melting sea ice, and such, uh, uh, and such like that, and um, it's interesting because it's all part of the green transition. And um, and I know uh, there was the uh, the climate change uh, climate change review pa uh, panel. Um, I can't remember whether it was last year's report or the year before, but they did say without sufficient cuts in emissions. Uh, without sufficient cuts in emissions, there are going to be um, uh, the the likelihood the Paris Agreement targets of one point five to two degrees is likely going to be something in in the region of three uh, of three to four degrees. In which case, it would be a disaster. It would be an absolute disaster. So then there needs to be an acceleration in this. Uh, there needs to be an acceleration in this green transition in order to address the root cause of climate of climate change or the acceleration in anthropogenic global warming. But then also trying to address the symptoms, and it's really interesting because there are there are numerous parallels which can be which can be sort of drawn in the conflicts, uh, uh, the conflicts between kind of like the state, uh, the state, the environmental and the, the environmental security of indigenous um, indigenous people. It's like we're looking at old subjects with new lenses. Um, it, it is a very maddening situation to be in because. 
Um, because you kind of look at the human the human race as a, as a civilization and you think we are creatures of habit aren't we we are creatures of habit there are things which are cyclical you think well yes we've done this before i get this feeling of deja vu um etc etc but uh, but my, my point my point is is that this um green transition is not without cost it's not without cost and i find the narrative of the green transition to be a very uh, a quite an interesting thing that you can say well yes we need to we need to accelerate the transition we need to do this we need to do x y and z in order to protect and save humanity but if you look at what's occurring where indigenous peoples are concerned funnily enough it doesn't to them to the to, to them and their perspectives like to that perspective it doesn't look like it's it's saving humanity kind of thing there is this slow encroachment into um, into their way of life and their identity, and and I mean in th- in this context, I'm specifically referring to the um, uh, the Sami uh, in northern in northern Scandinavia because it's quite a nice example um, to draw on. I know there are there are um, other examples in Canada and such like that where there have been actually uh, actual um, there have been actual geoengineering experiments carried out without the uh, consent of the um uh, of the inuit um within northern canada but focusing just on um the sami just for a second because i think it's quite nice to illustrate the parallels between like the green transition green colonialism and um and the kind of future and what threats there are to environmental security in that sense the uh, the indigenous people of the arctic have been subject to the to certain colonial discourses and and certain colonial uh, colonial practices in terms of this slow encroachment onto their uh, onto their land um so it's it's interesting to find this narrative the, the narrative of the green transition of um the like the green transition and how it can um how it can save humanity I find it really interesting that under this guise of climate mitigation and uh, and this saving humanity, um, it it has the potential to exacerbate these old these old wounds, these old colonial wounds. So if you think about it within this context, if you think if you try to draw these uh, try to draw these different parallels, um, the social and kind of environmental impacts of uh, developing things like oil extraction and associated infrastructure, wind farms, um, fossen and the store here. This is like this continued, this continued encroachment onto the, the one uh, land, which is traditionally Sami land, but also um, it results in a kind of suppression of their cultural identity. In particular, this fossen and store here, it was a Swiss indigenous rights NGO, which specifically focused on, on the protection of indigenous rights. And in 2018 in Storhaya, um, there was a, uh, a request from the UN Committee on the Elimination of Rests of um, Racial Discrimination to say uh, to halt the uh, production and planning of that particular uh, wind farm development. Of course, this was completely ignored. And... Um, uh, proceeded with anyway so and uh, i think it's sad situation to see where there is somebody a state like norway who of course um prides itself on being a bastion of uh, human rights and its um and the protections and the investment into 
um, different uh, different areas around the world, so reforestation project, projects and such, is it's somewhat of a paradox. I think it's the paradox paradoxical environmentalist. I'm 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 also plugging an article there that I wrote a few years ago. <laughs> With, with the title the paradoxical environmentalist i guess yes cheap pop <laughs> uh, we, we'll put we'll put a link to uh articles you've published in the show notes as well on our website don't you worry aaron lovely, um, lovely. Yeah. Uh, but i think i think just putting a pin on the on this idea of uh colonization and decolonization and mm. post-colonialism which we all deal with uh in our research from one angle you and i uh within international law or with international law perhaps not within uh and it's interesting that i think you and i Aaron, have been very critical of international law uh, as being also a tool of colonialism uh and and repeating the the pattern the colonial patterns as well so beyond beyond those kind of participatory rights which you, i mean you summarize as well and and self-determination mm. uh beyond beyond that language how can we make sure that uh the field of international law also uh so specifically in the arctic but also uh with the nascent uh geoengineering regulations how can we make sure they do not repeat those colonial patterns that's a difficult question. That is a very, very difficult question. I think one of the reasons why it's such a difficult thing to get our heads around in terms of um, in terms of decolonize like decolonization, but then bringing it um, like bringing indigenous like good strong indigenous voices to the table, especially when it comes to the implementation of geoengineering and the and the incorporation of indigenous knowledge into these particular practices, such as cl- uh, climate change mitigation and such. I think it stems, uh, and I think one of the reasons why this is such a difficult hurdle to um, to um, to cross is um, once again I'm going to draw on um, Lubov's um, presentation, and it's it's one of those things when you talk about the Arctic, uh, well, to the to the uninitiated, as it were, to those of us to those of us that are outside the kind of Arctic research bubble. If you talk about the Arctic to to any like layman on the street to any any anybody, well, what's what's one thing that they're gonna they're gonna say? They're gonna think about these wild frontiers where nobody lives and it's a barren wasteland and all this kind of like all all this kind of imagery. That's what that's what's conjured up through the Arctic. And I mean, it, it stems to the kind of early early sort of explorers and the early sort of like Soviet exploration into the Arctic as well. That it's always been. Like it's always been framed as as this kind of this other this other realm. It was there to be. I mean, especially within the Soviet kind of narratives of the Arctic, it was always it was always sort of like a an, a this this notion of othering, where it was kind of um, this wild frontier which is there to be conquered by only the hardiest and the strongest uh, the strongest people, kind of thing. Um. But and and I think that is something which has stuck um, gen generally, perhaps not out and perhaps not overtly. Um, I think with the, obviously the creation of the uh, the Arctic Council, that was a, that was uh, the best step forward to try and um, to try and bring it sort of bring it home. And I think one of the things that should be done, 
Um, but I'm very, con- I'm very conscious of the critiques of this particular, uh, of this particular next point, which I'm going to make, is that I think the Arctic Council should be reformed um, to make it to give to give it a stronger, a, a stronger mandate and a stronger legal mandate to govern. I think that's how, that's how I think it should be. It should be done. Now I know. Um, I know the uh, uh, Lucia de- Declaration said that there would be no extra, no extra legislation. There will be no, um, there will be no Arctic, uh, no Arctic Convention, as it were. Um, I do, I do genuinely believe that. I think the the Arctic Council and the the Indigenous representation, so the permanent participants of the Arctic Council, should be given a stronger voice because, like, hopefully, hopefully as as we've kind of indicated, is that what happens in practice, uh, what happens in um, like the narratives of saving humanity, and what happens in um, like what what policy kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, what policy kind of dictates? Um, versus what happens in practice is two is two very very different things so so i think that the permanent participants in the arctic do need to be given a stronger uh, a stronger stronger position i think the arctic uh, the arctic council itself does need to be reformed and um i think uh, i think it was heather exner perot who wrote um a great uh, critique on the reform or, or gen- generally looking at reform there were a couple of points um of the like the critiques of reform which were which were quite uh, quite valid and in terms of like uh, in terms of how any sort of reform could disturb the current kind of workflow and it could disturb and obviously there's the costs of implementing reform and changing things and and stuff like that and i think often those things aren't considered when we when we say oh yes we need to reform this we need to reform that I think more often than not, it's not given the wider context. And I think this is something with lawyers as well. I think lawyers generally think within their kind of dogmatic, like they dogmatically adhere to this one sort of narrow mindset where it's like, oh, we must reform. Here's how we do it in law. And it's like, well, okay, but we need to consider the wider considerations of what's happening here. So, um and perhaps there should be as well the adoption of a, when it comes to the FPIC, there should be a, a a universal standard adopted because I know, uh, I mean, you know as well as I do that when it comes to the implementation of the FPIC, um, some states, uh, uh, some states interpret this differently compared to um, other uh, other states, and also when it comes to um, yeah, private actors and things things to that effect, um, what they say and what they say and what they do doesn't doesn't often match up. Um, like I know in uh, with. Uh, coming back to f- the Fossen development, because um, I think it was a, ger- a German company which bore the operating costs of uh, the Storhire wind farm, um, but they the, but they said in their research that the um, wind power has um, negligible impacts on the um, like reindeer husbandry. But of course, there is countless there is countless numbers of different research research um, research which says the complete opposite so i i think there needs to be a stronger a stronger legal basis um when it comes to when it comes to indigenous represent representation i think there needs to be universal standards where the ethics concerned and yeah i think there needs to be a a kind of a larger voice rather than rather than any symbol like symbolism uh, 
which sometimes if you look at how uh, a political like the uh, political self-determination and within that sort of context um sometimes it is you could argue that it is more or less a symbolic act um uh, it needs to be more than just this um symbolic acts i think it needs to be definitive uh, universal standards that's really interesting. Yeah, at the moment we only have guidelines from yeah. uh, a few different international uh, treaty bodies. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's what I mean. It's only, I mean, there are some OECD guidelines and things like that, and and it's all open. It's all open to interpretation. And and also, I mean, it's all soft law because they're yeah. just guidelines. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and and just quickly on the topic uh, of uh, reforming the Arctic Council. Uh, if any of our listeners are interested in this, we have uh, some great articles published by the Arctic Institute uh, last year, actually. I think the the article you were referring to was one by Heather Exner-Piro, but also a collective of other uh, wonderful researchers, Maria Akrin, uh, Natalia Kacheva, Heather Nichol, uh, Annika Nielsen and Jennifer Spence uh, on the form and function mm. and the future of the Arctic Council. Um, we will share a link uh, in the description as well, uh, and and which prompted another article uh, by um, uh, Goshia Shmishek, uh, sorry, on cost and reality of reforming the Arctic Council. So there's there's a bit of a, of a conversation going about uh, reforming the Arctic Council, at least in in um, in academic circles. Mm-hmm. This can be found our, on our website. So that's a that's really a shameless plug. Uh, for for the research <laughs> we've, we've published uh, uh, at the Arctic Institute. Um, see, see, I'm the gift that keeps on giving. I'm plugging my own research. I'm plugging your research. I'm plugging the institute. <laughs> this is how we're all. <laughs> uh, but you know, following up on that and your your observation about the Arctic Council and the need for stronger legal bases. Hmm. For the indigenous uh, representation, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about legal research and especially education, mm-hmm. and you've been part of that for quite a while, you know, um, yes. working in different in different countries and in different education systems. Uh, judging from your experience, what is needed to generate another legal narrative or legal tools within this discipline of law? Well, I, I think within law, and especially within the context, um, the context of the Arctic. Um, well, I, I think one of the fantastic things about the the Arctic itself, uh, and those legal researchers which research within the Arctic, um, because it's it's like it's a wonderful mix of kind of geographers, anthropologists, and um, uh, although geographers are the bane of my life, I'm I'm super jealous. I, I, I'm. I'm very, very jealous of geographers because they have this unique ability to understand data, law, and all these different, and dip in and out of all these different subjects. And they have this this wonderful, like they are able to display this wonderful depth of depth of knowledge. And um, being somebody who comes from law, uh, geography at high school, but then went into law and now back into kind of environmental law. Um, I feel like I'm relearning to uh, like relearning the skills and writing to uh, like looking at data and things like that. I'm uh, dipping in and out again. So it's um, it is quite fantastic. It is quite fantastic that the Arctic, like the Arctic bubble, and the, like looking at all the different streams and things that we can study within the Arctic. Um, 
but in terms of um, in terms of the Arctic, what's uh, what's needed, especially in um, legal education, and coming uh, coming back to the link with my previous uh, admiration of geographers and, and legal geographers and political political geographers and such, is that I I, th- I think one of the one of the things within law is that lawyers are kind of one trick ponies in the sense that they look at a kind of doctrinal analysis of the law they'll, they'll and they won't give any uh, sort of wider considerations it will be just a straightforward black letter um, black letter examination of the law and the operation of the law and i think sometimes they don't they don't consider the wider application so the context for which the law is applied the socio-economic circumstances as to how this particular law is developed or the scientific where where the environment is concerned and where geoengineering is, is concerned they don't consider the kind of scientific side of things um um but i, I think that is something which needs uh, which needs um a greater expansion i think law and lawyers need to expand their thinking to not just a kind of not just a kind of practical uh, like not just the practical side of things they need to understand the deeper like the deeper side of what they are um of what they are looking at um so so i think lawyers need to branch out they need to understand the kind of deeper meaning behind the science behind the social policy behind the economic policies um everything i think but everything um i think that's the best way to create effective effective legal regulation but also create effective um create effective understanding definitely that there's i think the legal mind is is quite narrow yes. and and that we i mean we are all taught to to only look at the legal facts and not to take into account other realities and and, um, and other perspectives, I guess. We, we're going to try to wrap up this amazing conversation, really. <laughs> uh, but, and, but perhaps you could talk a tiny bit more on, uh, oh, a tiny bit more, but also quite briefly, I guess, um, on what it's like to be an Arctic researcher or an Arctic legal researcher in the nearest Arctic country uh, that the UK has has been branding itself. Um, I, I thought that was Estonia. <laughs> 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 I know there is some debate about this, isn't there, about who the actual nearest Arctic country is. But what's it like? Um, it's fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic being an Arct- Arctic researcher. Um or, or, or being a legal, being a leak, a kind of legal mind within um, Arctic research, because uh, like like we said, I think one of the best um, one of the best things is being able to meet and being able to talk to so many different to scholars, which that are from uh, anthropology, which are from uh, uh, legal geography, political geography. Um, I mean, legal geography was fascinating. This was something that I only discovered uh, uh, like early on this year, um, and uh, it was um, uh, Dr. Corinne Wood Donnelly. Actually, she's uh, a, a researcher, a researcher at the um, Nord um, University in um, Norway. Ice Queen on Twitter. I think. Indeed, indeed, indeed. 
and um she she highlighted um legal geography and the kind of its place within its place within the arctic and like she she sent me a couple of books to read as well and i thought my god this is fascinating but also it's another reason for me to be increasingly jealous of geographers and their ability to dip in and out of these different uh, these different subjects but but uh, my 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 point is my point is it's the the sheer number of different disciplines and different perspectives that are on offer in such a kind of small bubble is wonderful it's absolutely fantastic um uh, and i think it's one of the it's it's one of the the best things about studying within uh, about studying and and being and researching within the arctic and um and being within this kind of community um because it, it's one of those where you find that if you speak to one researcher and you say, oh, do you know X, for example? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I know X. I did I did a conference um, a couple of months ago and things like that. Uh, and it, it's, it's brilliant. It's a fascinating area. Many different levels of kind of legal, reg- uh, legal regulation, but then looking at the kind of environmental regulation. And, and then you can look at it within the kind of geopolitical context. So you can look at it within concepts of, um, security within like these concepts of security, uh, uh, colonialism, and all these different um, all, all these different areas, and it keeps you continually interested. And there are always constant developments within this particular area, and it's always it's always a fascinating thing. And and I always think because Russia's involved, um, it's this huge, this huge powerful kind of nation with this huge influence, yet. It's an area which sees very little kind of physical, like physical, actual practical conflict. All the uh, all the conflicting claims of like different uh, different territorial, or like the different territorial claims, they are all resolved within the kind of parameters of international law. It's it, like applications are lodged with the necessary and appropriate bodies, um, and everything's done within the like within international law. So I guess it's kind of one of those areas which like when people criticize international law for being um impotent if if i could use that word it, it's one of the areas where you could say well no look at the arctic international law and the operation of international law is actually quite effective um so perhaps that's why i like it because it's a justification whenever somebody says international law isn't law you can say well, yes it is um but for all of the above, for all of the above, it is a brilliant and fantastic area uh, area to be in. I think that's a wonderful way to wrap it up. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Aaron. You are absolutely most welcome. A great conversation, actually. Great conversation. <laughs>